Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And Phil Goldfeder weighed this week. And uh, good, because I think he would probably be gloating at the increased gains of Democrats in both House and Senate races since last week, Election Day. It, it is quite breathtaking how, or certainly noteworthy, I don't know about breathtaking, whether we're going to quite get there to that level, but the number of seats that have been so close that have yet to be called, um, just not even talking about Florida, not even talking about the recounts, which are the major news, we'll get to that in a second, but just regular races, California, New Jersey, New York, uh, there are a lot of races in the states that are going on still, I think there are eight that are still uncalled in the House of Representatives nationwide, And six of those are led by Democrats, but the Democrats yesterday picked up two seats, and they've been picking up a number of seats all week in the House of Representatives. New Jersey, our neighboring state uh, here sitting in New York, I'm sure some of the listeners are are New Jerseyans, down to one Republican, a solitary Republican in their House delegation. That's right, you heard it. One Republican, Chris Smith, represents uh, Ocean County, Lakewood area. And uh, has been in Congress, longtime serving member of Congress, but the other Republican was ousted. Race was called yesterday, as in Wednesday. Uh, Tom MacArthur, who was a two-term incumbent, uh, lost to Andy Kim. And in the uh, a sou- southern New Jersey seat, parts of Ocean, Burlington, uh, kind of stretches from the Philly suburbs all the way to the Jersey Shore and had been a Republican seat for many years, and now it's in the Democrats. And uh, historically, there are 11 Democrats, one Republican in New Jersey. This is the last time the last time that Democrats had such a large advantage in New Jersey, according to what I saw, is when Woodrow Wilson was president. So you have to go back 100 years to see kind of the domination of the entire state of New Jersey by Democrats. And, you know, the governor, of course, being a Democrat, the two U.S. senators being Democrats, now 11 of 12 House members being Democrats, as well as both houses of the state legislature. This is the problem in the Northeast that the Republicans are facing, having been decimated in these midterms, and New Jersey is just emblematic of it. New Jersey is kind of once thought of as a little bit of a swing state. And there was some feeling that Bob Menendez, because of all his legal troubles, would lose. And that would, and Bob Hugan, who was a pharmaceutical executive, funded his own campaign by about $35 million, that he would actually lose his seat. And the increased Republican turnout because of that would help some of these very, very tight races, like in the 3rd District with Tom MacArthur, as we mentioned, but he lost anyway. In the 7th District, uh, Leonard Lance, he lost. And the 11th District, the retiring vacant seat, uh, Rodney Freelinghausen, that was also a Democratic takeover. So as we had talked about before, the road to the House majority for the Democrats went through these populous uh, suburban areas such as in New York, 
New Jersey, Pennsylvania, California, Virginia. And while we talk about red states and blue states, and we kind of make it seem like, oh, these are just exclusively so, uh, when we talk about those, we also need to consider that there are many house races out there that that get you to a majority. Now, the Senate, of course, has the imbalance of doesn't really have the one man, one vote. It's represented by states. So the two senators for every state, you have two senators in Wyoming and the same way you have two senators in California, despite the fact that there's clearly a population imbalance between those two states. And you have a number of states that only have one representative in the House of Representatives because of their small population but they still have two U.S. senators. So the number of people who voted for Democrats overall in Senate races, and this not necessarily, this is a metric to see where the, I think, where the country is, as opposed to saying they should change the rules. Our Constitution has been, though imperfect, it has guided us, uh, I think, quite well, this being uh, the greatest of all countries and the greatest of all governments, has guided us for so long that was my intention here of talking about this stat is not to talk about the imperfections of our representative system. Uh, but I did, po- but should point out that far more people voted for Democrats in the midterms than did Republicans, despite the fact that the Republicans hold and will continue to hold an edge in the United States Senate for at least another two years. Uh, it was seen Um, Oh, so just to get back to the point, the fact is that the Republicans with their campaign strategy seem to just have abandoned the suburbs, abandoned higher educated voters, uh, abandoned more, um, let's say, less nationalistic type voters, less anti-immigration voters, uh, less Trumpy voters. There's no well real way to say it, the political category, because I think the president defies political categorization. And he's kind of his own phenomenon, you know, part populist and just, uh, or very populist, you should, I should say. Um, but the slash and burn rhetoric that came about in the last couple weeks prior to the election, uh, there's no question it turned off many moderate voters and many moderate Republicans. Now, some Republicans and some of the party might say, okay, good riddance. We need more ideological purity. We need to actually stand for something. We need a real agenda. However, you also have to play to your electorate and your district. And Republicans have long won in places that are not rural, uh, less college-educated voters. They have long maintained a majority in wealthier suburban districts, and they are now getting wiped out in some of those places. And we also see at the same time, we also see the cannibalization of Republicans against their own causing electoral losses. Some of these uh, primaries from the right that have taken out some reliably uh, popular Republican vote-getters and Republican office holders 
in primaries and then have led to Democratic takeovers. And that happened this week in Arizona as the Republicans lost the Jeff Flake seat. Now, a lot of people out there on the Republican side, a lot of Trump supporters, they good. They say, good riddance. We don't want Jeff Flake anyway. He wasn't on board. He wasn't with the agenda. The funny thing is, if you look back in Jeff Flake's career, he's one of the most principled conservatives out there. He was in the House. In fact, he so much annoyed some of the House leadership because he was kind of an inflexible conservative before the Freedom Caucus. Uh, but when he moved to the Senate, he became... Uh, kind of perceived as a moderate, even though his voting record is not a moderate, but very much of the Goldwater, more libertarian, Western mold. And Jeff Flake was basically pushed out um, by the president and would not probably, I'm sure, would not have won a Republican primary and because he was not of the new did not get with the program with the Republican Party. So Jeff Flake decided to retire. And they had a great candidate, the Republicans, although a tough primary, but Martha McSally was a great candidate, and she former a fighter pilot, um, but I uh, first female fire, fighter pilot in the armed forces, but she lost. That seat was lost to the Democrats. It's hard to think that Jeff Flake would have lost re-election in the general election. And it just goes to show that perhaps the long-term strategy is one that they need to think about, is one that Republicans need to think about themselves, is, you know, we might not, we might not agree with Jeff Flake 100% of the time, but we probably do agree with him 90% of the time. After all, it's not like Jeff Flake voted against repealing Obamacare, John McCain did. It's not like, you know, Jeff Flake was had been with the program, voted for tax cuts, voted was with the president's agenda. He just didn't like the way the president's rhetoric, and for that, that was a sin. But on the other hand, rather have him, if you're a Republican, you agree with 90% of the time than Kirsten Sinema, who is... Um, who is a Democrat, who you basically going to disagree with 100% of the time. And it just seems that, you know, political malpractice, you sit around thinking about, well, we should have done this differently. Another example, South Carolina, Mark Sanford, former governor of South Carolina, who, you know, we scandal had to resign, but came back and ran for Congress and was a proven vote-getter in the first congressional district of South Carolina, a reliably Republican district, I think, for, for decades. And he actually penned an op-ed uh, in the, I'm sure somebody, in the hated New York Times. And he was uh, unseated in a primary. And actually, uh, President Trump actually gloated over that uh, when he went to the House and said, oh, Mark Sanford, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, you know, and quoted by tweet, and kind of gloated that Mark Sanford was uh, defeated because he had criticized the president. Unfortunately, uh, Republicans no longer hold that seat. And if you think about it, the uh, Katie Arrington, who was the Trump uh, candidate who ousted him in the primary, 
Uh, she actually blamed Mark Sanford, who wasn't running, who wasn't on the ballot, uh, for losing that seat for the Republicans. Uh, not actually giving the credit to Joe Cunningham, the Democrat, but actually saying here, uh, you know, even though it's been 40 years since the Democrat hold that seat, and even though it was your race to lose, you're going to blame the guy who you took out because you said he was bad for the country. Um, you know, another example of Republicans kind of eating their own to their own detriment. And if you're a voter out there, you're thinking to yourself, gee, I mean, these guys, they just, they can't get it together. And that matters. I mean, a lot of people, they're looking for change. They're looking for something different. And they don't want, or they're happy with uh, their current representative. Uh, and Mark Sanford, a super fiscally conservative guy, a member of the Freedom Caucus. This is not a guy who was, could at all be accused of being liberal. He just was perceived to not be supportive enough of the president. And I guess he failed that loyalty test. Unfortunately, for the Republican Party, uh, it seems that a lot of voters in the first district of California of South Carolina are not sufficiently loyal to the president. Uh, another casualty, Daniel Rohrbacher, uh, he's out, and he had been a, a fervent supporter in Southern California, Orange County, longtime hotbed. That's the, Richard Nixon's home county. Uh, long-time hotbed of Republican activism and Republican votes now very much going the Democrats' way. And just take you back to another noteworthy loss on the part of Republicans. Congressman Dave Bratt lost a also a reliably Republican district. And the interesting thing there is that, as you remember, two cycles ago, uh, Dave Bratt unseated in a primary Eric Cantor, who was at the time the majority leader of the House of Representatives, the highest ranking, the highest ranking member of Congress ever to lose a primary. And he took him out. He was a Freedom, uh, Freedom Caucus guy. And Bratt lost his seat uh, to a former CIA agent. So the Democrats now hold that seat. And that's a suburban district, but the Richmond suburbs, not like you would think Northeast suburbs, but these are the, this is the suburbs of Richmond, Virginia. You would think reliably red territory, not the inner city, you know, it's, it's, and it's a district where in the primary Republican voters took out Eric Cantor, very Republican, obviously deep red guy. This is pre-Trump. This is the pre-Trump era, but Dave Bratt now out. So Republicans are need to think about what they're doing when it comes to these primaries and whether long term these some of those decisions are going to work for them or going to work against them. And you kind of scratch your head at some of these things and you kind of understand why Paul Ryan chose to hang up his cleats and move on from Congress, uh, you know. John Boehner decided to move on from Congress. Now, the one thing interesting, of course, is that there was a leadership election uh, on the Republican side yesterday, and Kevin McCarthy, widely expected, who was the majority leader, is now going to be the minority leader, and he was reelected. Jim Jordan from the Freedom Caucus ran against him and, and tried to get the far right and 
kind of acute, said that he would be more pro-Trump and more pro the president, but that was widely rejected. I don't know if we actually had the stats of how that vote goes, because those votes are usually behind closed doors. But apparently, it's safe to say, and read from most reports, that Kevin McCarthy crushed Jordan. So I think that Republicans will now regroup a little bit. The interesting thing now of that conference is there's going to be a lot more moderates than there used to be. So we'll have to uh, we'll have to see how that how that goes and what happens there, and how that shapes up going into the next um, going into the new Congress. Uh, now on the Democratic side, you have a very interesting phenomenon of many members who came in promising not to vote for Nancy Pelosi for Speaker. Pelosi clearly going to run. Clearly said that she is you know laid down the gauntlet yesterday. Uh, and said, uh, I will be speaker. And we'll have to see how that shakes out, whether there will be any type of uh, youth movement within the uh, House leadership. A lot of these members are uh, advanced now, and a, a lot of these chairmen, uh, chairman, those who hold the chairmanships and the leadership, late 70s, early 80s, uh, nothing against uh, whatsoever. Uh, this is not an ageism comment. It's just a fact. Um, and a lot of these chairmen have been waiting, you know, a decade or so to get their chairmanships back. So, in you know, seniority is everything in Congress. And when you're waiting uh, to that to happen to get a chair to get the chairmanship, you're kind of sitting yourself and say, "Whoa, I'm not giving this up for somebody younger. I'm taking this. I'm taking this myself. You know, I'm calling my own number." So, let's just. Uh, discuss very quickly some of the other things that have gone on this week. And there has been a lot in addition to, I guess I said, the Democrats gaining uh, seats, perceived shakeup in the uh, White House staff, rumors that Kirsten Nielsen is going to be leaving, that John Kelly is going to be leaving, the chief of staff, that there are others. A The deputy to John Bolton was ousted this week, uh, interestingly enough, by Melania Trump, by the first lady. Uh, who extraordinarily put out a public statement saying that this person should be fired. And uh, that was quite breathtaking. Um, And we've just seen uh, this, something I didn't think I'd see for quite some time, CNN and Fox News together in court fighting the White House after, in uh, again, an extraordinary scene, the president... uh, publicly feuding with Jim Acosta, who was clearly grandstanding, uh, Jim Acosta of CNN. But, you know, there is a reason we have freedom in this country, and you have a freedom, free press, and uh, we might not always like what the press says, and we might not always think that they have the right slant on things, um, certainly. But we have an option, of course, to tune it out and to not listen to them. But questioning of elected officials is part of our tradition and should continue to be part of our tradition and is a very important part of government in the United States. And uh, clearly, both sides of the argument, meaning Fox and CNN, recognize that and have gone to court after the White House decided to revoke the press pass of Jim Acosta and not allow him entry into the White House anymore, not allow him to do his job. Uh, again, I this guy, I, I you know, I find his questioning to be just way over the line and way too much of a slant. And he's supposed to be a journalist, not supposed to be an opinion maker. Uh, but on the other hand, you have it on the same side. I mean, 
you know, I know Sean Hannity doesn't, and you know, Janine Pirro, and uh, they don't pretend they don't. They say they're commentators as opposed to journalists. The problem is they're going on TV and on a reputable newspaper and news program. And the point here is not to be a cheerleader. The point here is to, you know, Fox News used to be about fair and balanced. You decide, and there is still quite a bit of that. I mean, they have some exceptional journalists on Fox News, and I'm and I'm on, you know, I'm tuned to it. Uh, but when it becomes entirely slanted, and when you have occasions when, uh, particularly with Janine Pirro, who will interrupt the guests and you know uh, try and silence them when she doesn't like what they're saying. Um, you know, that, that's a little bit much. I mean, that's not, you know, I don't know that's entirely what we stand for. So Fox News and CNN are on the same side there. And now the big news of Elsa the Week, the non-political but taking on political form, is Amazon. Amazon announces that they're going and, you know, people suddenly say, well, why is this political? This is not political. There's nothing political about this. Well, in fact, uh, the Amazon... Um, decision to locate in Virginia and New York is now becoming a big political issue in New York. Amazon has chosen as their half headquarters to to try and locate 25,000 employees in Long Island City, Queens. And one would think that people would be falling over themselves to say jobs, jobs, jobs. Incredible. Now, yes, there is a big package of incentives that comes along with that. But and now, Democratic politicians and New York, there is a tendency is kind of to fall all over yourself to um, in the embrace of socialism these days. Uh, same, quite a few politicians, including the uh, number two in the New York State Senate Democrats, Michael Giannaris, who uh, has now is going to be in a position of significant power, represents the area, now saying, well, we shouldn't have. Amazon, we shouldn't give them, we shouldn't bring them to New York. We shouldn't give them away because they'll come anyway. Now, that might be the case. Now, Amazon might come to New York anyway. But, but if there's competition from around the country to get the jobs and to get their headquarters and to bring that to New York and to bolster and augment the tech scene, which is already a huge employer in New York City and is actually surpassing the financial services industry as an employer and high-paid jobs and generating tax revenue of all kinds, you know, you're kind of looking now and saying, hey, we want this. And in fact, some of these same politicians, some of them who are out there saying, oh, terrible deal. We, we, can't, do, we can't do this. Here is Jumani Williams, who's running for, uh, who's a city councilman running for public advocate, as well as Mike Gianaris, as I mentioned, and Jimmy Van Bramer, who is the local city councilman over there in Long Island City. He, they all wrote a letter asking Amazon to come to New York. You know, there was this letter that said, oh, let's bring him here. And the this deal was cut by two Democratic politicians who don't, normally don't even see eye to eye, Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio. And you see a divide here between those who realize that jobs are important and those that realize that, well, we got to protect our special interests. You know, I, I, I hear that, the, well, New York is a union town. Are the jobs at Amazon going to be unionized? I don't know what tech company has unionized jobs. 
I don't even know how you would have. I mean, it, it, these jobs are so much about merit. How are you going to have, how are you going to collectively bargain? And, you know, there's this kind of outcry. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez goes, puts out a statement that the community is outraged. I'm sure people are outraged when they say we're going to create 25,000 jobs. And amazingly, this is not tax dollars. It's not as if that money is being taken from a school and saying, okay, we'll give it to Amazon. This is about tax credits and tax breaks that you get for bringing economic activity. Now, a lot of these economic development gro- deals are no good and they don't really work. And, you know, we can look upstate at the amount of money New York State has spent in order to go ahead and attract business. And it's quite extraordinary. But again, this is Amazon and it's a whole, the scale of it is a huge, is, is a different ball game. Now, you can look, it's $2.5 billion plus incentive package. That's if they hit all their numbers. And, uh, it's really, you see a divide here between different types of Democrats, the Cuomo Democrats and those that are you know, more practical and trying to push economic development and infrastructure. And, you know, it's a question, why, like, why are we investing in infrastructure? Why do we invest in roads and airports and bridges? I mean, clearly Cuomo gets that. And, uh, you know, and eventually a lot of these politicians have to figure out the inflated cost, the inflated cost of doing business in New York uh, because of a lot of this socialism or ethic is going to ultimately drive business out. That's already what's happened upstate. Now, because New York City is so dynamic, obviously, it hasn't, it's had the ability to withstand some of these over-regulation and over-taxing. But New York is already the leading, the ranks 50th last as far as tax. Um, So it's the highest overall combined tax burden in the country. And as I said, if Cuomo and de Blasio can agree on something like this, a lot of the people should take pause and say, not use this as a political cudgel and say, 25,000 jobs is 25,000 jobs. And that's going to help a lot of people. So that's a good segue to the new, to the new, um, the latest, and we might have thought we had a break from politics coming up, but we actually don't if you live in New York City. Uh, the public advocate position would be would now vacate will be vacated on January one by Letitia James, who's becoming the New York State Attorney General. Tish James is now going to become uh, sorry sorry becoming the Attorney General that would create a vacancy and Bill De Blasio, the mayor, will have to call a special election for public advocate. Now this is not a normal New York City special election. This will be an open election. It'll be everybody runs not on party lines, but they run on independent slates. So you could have seven, eight people in this election. In fact, there was debate. There, the debates have already started. Ra- last night you had council members Rafael Espinal, Councilman Eric Ulrich, Councilman Jumani Williams, Assemblyman Danny O'Donnell, uh, Assemblyman Michael Blake of the Bronx. And other, uh, Dawn Smalls and Nomiki Konst, they showed up at uh, they showed up at a debate last night for a public advocate. And we might say that uh, this is going to be the interesting season. Could a Republican like Eric Ulrich actually win in a multi-way um, in a multi-way wide open race? <laughs> actually, that's how he won his city council seat in the beginning in a special election. So 
it does offer a moderate middle-of-the-road type of uh, path, although it's very difficult in New York City to kind of navigate that moderate middle-of-the-road path, and especially since Republicans' brand in New York City is not exactly uh, looking shiny right now. Uh, so we will see. That's going to be an interesting race. Uh, yeah, be, by law, I think it has to be towards the end of February. So January and February are going to be quite exciting. Uh, actually, I guess the race has already started because we all know the vacancy is going to happen, even though the election has not been called. So never a break from politics, never a break from exciting uh, times. And we will see whether you know there are those that are not of the far progressive wing of the Democratic Party can, or uh, moderate, uh, more moderate voices in New York City can flex their muscles a little bit uh, regard to this. Because right now, if Jumani Williams, who ran for lieutenant governor, uh, city councilman, is the presumed front runner and was a proven vote getter as lieutenant governor, even though he fell short in the primary and lost to Kathy Hochul. So time will tell as we see in politics, nothing is actually predictable. We don't know. Even from last week to this week, last week we thought, well, okay, Republicans were sitting okay. And now it, there's just been a stream of bad news as far as the congressional results for Republicans since election day. As I said, regardless of what happens in the Florida recount um, I don't think anything is likely to change hands in those recounts. I will say this as we sign off. Uh, the president said, let's not count the absentee ballots. Let's not count those mail-in ballots in Florida. The Republicans actually, by registration, have the edge in those ballots. That's it for this week here on the Nachum Siegel Network. See you next week. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.